0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Soundstage Access, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and my guest this week is Chris Beck, an Emmy-winning music composer with over 150 credits in film and television, including The Hangover, Disney's Frozen and Frozen 2, the Ant-Man franchise, and Marvel's first series, WandaVision. In today's conversation, the 48-year-old and I discuss a wide range of topics. How Chris wound up a student at the USC Film Scoring Program, the one year that legendary composer Jerry Goldsmith was teaching, why Chris considers Frozen the project that, in many ways, changed his life, what it was like for him to return to television 20 years after finishing Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and his conceptual approach to the score of WandaVision, a tease of his work on the upcoming Marvel film Ant-Man Quantum Mania. all of this and much more. If you enjoy this show, you might want to hit that subscribe button to find all previous episodes of the podcast. Look for Soundstage access across social media. We now have an Instagram page, so you can catch a preview of which guests we'll be interviewing next. But now, without further ado, let's go to our conversation. Chris, thank you so, so much for joining us on the show. I'm extremely excited. We're going to talk about a lot of work, but we're going to go all the way back. And it's going to start with you finding a pamphlet at the USC film scoring program. That's right. Because early on as a Canadian living in Los Angeles, you originally were looking at being a Broadway composer, but you kind of got sidetracked when you attended the film scoring program. And that was the early 90s. So it was kind of new at the time. And the one year you attend, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's a one year Jerry Goldsmith is teaching.
1: That's correct. That was definitely a fortuitous coincidence. I consider him to this day, to be a great inspiration. I really think that as far as economy in thematic development goes, he's the best of the best. And what I mean by that is his ability to take a small nugget of music and spin an entire score out of it. He will take his main theme and find ways to turn it upside down, put it backwards, kick it down three octaves and build an action cue out of it kick it up three octaves and slow it way down to make a suspense or a mystery cue out of it. He is able to make so much out of so little and it gives the work, the entire score, a cohesiveness that you wouldn't find otherwise. I have in fact in the past compared him to Beethoven in his mastery of that particular technique. And yeah, you're right, I always knew I wanted to do music growing up, and during high school and much of college, I thought that I wanted to be a rock star. I had rock star dreams, like like many musicians then and now, I'm sure, and took until around college to realize that I was lacking in certain abilities, naturally, like I can't write a lyric to save my life, I'm not the world's best singer, and I'm kind of terrified to be on stage in front of a whole bunch of people. All of these are problems if you want to be a rock star. So I naturally started to look for other ways that I could pursue my broader dream, which was to find a way to make a living making music. And at the time, I was really into Broadway musicals, and NYU had a program there that was quite well-renowned, and they took their group of students only every couple of years. So they would take a group of 15 students, work with them for two years, and then a new group. And it happened to be an off year. I wanted to apply when I graduated college, but I had to wait a year. So I thought, okay, what else can I do? And I was in the Yale, it was the office where you could go and research opportunities, post college opportunities. In high school, we called it the guidance counselor. But I was looking at internships and literally, this like single page, not even a pamphlet, just like on regular paper, fell out of another pamphlet and was really like DIY, homemade. Nobody put any effort into marketing it. It just kind of fell into my lap almost literally. And it was only a year long. And I thought, oh, wow, this program at USC and film scoring, I didn't really consider that as a career. I think I'll go check it out. And if it doesn't stick, then uh, I can always apply to the NYU program when it's over. Of course, I never did apply to the NYU program. It did stick. And I found what, to me, was and continues to be a really great fit for my sensibilities as a musician, my feeling of of being more comfortable in a behind-the-scenes role rather than in the spotlight especially the idea of storytelling through music. I had always, even up to that point in my college career, when I was composing, I always felt like I was more comfortable making music in service of a story. That's why I was into musicals. That's why I wrote a bunch of musicals and an opera while I was at Yale. And so it was just a really natural fit.
0: In addition to your sensibility, someone else you also found is a gentleman by the name of Marco Boltrami. I mean, it kind of blows my mind in regards to classmates. Sometimes you make good friendships, Is it true you guys were, for a hot second, you tried to partner up to make the Beck-Beltrami team?
1: Yes, and I, I can only assume, since you are incredible at doing your research, that you know the punchline to this story. Yes, we teamed up. We were a good fit because Marco, at the time, had a little bit of momentum in his very early career. He was able to get gigs before many of us did. And he was new to the world of home studio production, which is an area I was very comfortable in. So he brought to me a job that he was up for. It was called, um, it was Deathmatch, which was a like a martial arts movie. That was before then. And he would bring his musical ideas and then we would work them out together using my equipment and my skills as an arranger and engineer to produce scores At home which at the time was an art that was very much in its infancy although it is now really standard practice among all composers so that worked out well and we decided to team up and go for gigs together and it worked out great we did a few until we worked on that show land's end where i ended up getting fired and they ended up keeping marco and you know that was a little rough for a bit but that's okay you know, we're good friends, they wanted to keep him. I'm not gonna stop him from, from doing the gig and I had other opportunities that I was pursuing, so all good. But then the very next one we did was for a reality TV show type of a deal. Another one that we started together and uh, somehow, I wish I could remember the details, somehow I ended up getting fired and he ended up staying on. So I thought, okay, you know, there's a pattern for me here and uh, I think I need to break the cycle. So we, we kind of called it quits as a partnership but we have remained friends to this day. I think both of us had a bit of a bond with Jerry Goldsmith when he was at USC. I know that uh, Jerry took a particular liking to both of us as composers and was very supportive of us. And we remain friends and even have found ways here and there to work together.
0: Just out of curiosity, when you were working with Jerry Goldsmith with a teacher in a class like that, the kind of workshops and exercises you guys do on a weekly basis, is it kind of getting naked piece of film and composing to a movie you already have or somebody else's movie? What kind
1: of exercises did you do? It was one semester. And what we would do is he would bring in a film that he was working on at the time. And the two films that we got to work on were Forever Young, starring Mel Gibson and... Matinee, which was directed by Joe Dante. But before he brought in a frame of picture for us to look at, he would describe not even the story, but the emotional content, the emotional brief that you might get from a filmmaker before a frame is shot or even before you get a chance to read a script. And our first job was to write a main theme. And we would workshop that. We would take turns going up to the piano, putting our sheet music, you know, which generally was handwritten at the time, and play our theme for him at the piano. And then he would just purely on a musical and really basic emotional level, critique it, suggest areas that could have improvement. And this would go for a couple of weeks. And then once we had that main theme, sometimes there would be a secondary theme that he would assign us as well. As I'm sure you're well aware, most films need a little bit more than one main theme in order to spin an entire score out of it and then we would start looking at scenes you would bring in three or four scenes we would choose one or two we would write the cue out on paper first this is again we're right at the dawn of home studio so there was really no way to some of us had home studios we could sort of demo things with but generally that wasn't the process and then uh, eventually there would be a recording session And we at USC were fortunate enough to have these recording sessions every couple of weeks and the the classes that they were for would kind of rotate. And then we would go into the studio, conduct our piece and bring it back in Put it up against picture and then we would all take turns presenting our work and getting praise or critique from our classmates and from jerry and this entire process took about half the semester and then we did it again with a different film and his focus as i mentioned before something that i really credit to him in terms of my approach to scoring even today is economy is how do you take that main theme and make it a kind of living breathing part of every piece of music that exists in a, in a film score so special attention was paid to that.
0: I really quickly want to talk about your career beginnings on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, a show that is so thematically rich when it comes to stakes, you know, like the apocalypse and young love, and your music needs to reflect that. In that case, sometimes you have an episode full of work to do in three, four days. So when it comes to creative growth, I I wonder how the rigid schedule of television prepared you for all the films you were about to embark on.
1: There could be no better preparation. It was a fantastic opportunity. I didn't know how good an opportunity it was even while I was doing it. Certainly I was thrilled to be working, A, on a show that was culturally relevant, that people had heard of when I would tell them what I was working on. But more importantly, exactly what you said, yeah, it's a show about kids in high school, but the themes are big, it's the end of the world, it's doomed love, it's life and death. And the palette was symphonic and cinematic. This is the type of scoring that uh, the creator of the show, Joss Whedon, enjoyed and encouraged me to write. And yes, it was a punishing schedule, as most television shows are. As I recently found out with WandaVision after, what, 20 years off from doing TV? And uh, what an amazing training ground. One of the skills we composers need to develop is the ability to produce quickly, And there's not only training that comes into that, I rely on my academic training and the self-teaching I did outside of the academic world to be able to sit down at my keyboard computer and know before I play the notes what they're gonna sound like and know before I play the next chord in a piece what chords will work. There's not that much guesswork when I have to write fast. And almost as importantly, the psychological aspect of knowing that you have a deadline and there is no second guessing. First idea that works, that comes out, you commit to. And you you complete whatever it is that needs completion on that idea and you move on. There's a bit of a fly by the seat of your pants feeling to it. There's psychologically speaking, again, there's a little bit of having to let go of whatever your idea of perfection is, but there's a freedom in that as well, in that you're not overthinking anything. And I think sometimes great work can come out of that type of process where you have to just go with your first idea, there's a purity in it, and sometimes that produces uh, great results.
0: I'm gonna dive in and start talking about film projects. I had to cut out so many questions out of this because I was like, we only have 24 hours in the day, but I wanted to mention how the very first time I remember becoming aware of your work was on Big Fat Liar.
1: That film recently celebrated its 20th anniversary. That film has a real special place in my heart. First big studio film, but more importantly, also Sean Levy's first film. I'm very grateful that I got to work with him on his first movie. I'm grateful to my agent at the time who managed to sneak in my demo reel among other more established composers. And I'm grateful that he took the time to check out this totally unknown composer with a a few TV credits and consider me for that job that has produced a very fruitful collaboration. I think we've done eight movies together now, the most recent one being Free Guy with Ryan Reynolds, which hasn't come out yet, which is, it's just like, I'm chomping at the bit for it to come out. It's been finished for a year and um, it's a bit of a, a, a casualty of the pandemic, but it will come out and I think people will love it. Good morning, Goldie. My name is Guy and I live in Free City. I have everything I need. Except One thing. Hey bud, you ever think that there's gotta be more? More than what? The stuff we do day after day. Literally not once. Today's gonna be different, Goldie. What are we looking at? Who are you? We
0: ran into each other the other day. How did you find me? I waited outside by
1: the murder train. Guy, I have to tell you something. There is no easy way to say this. This world, it's a video game. I really want to kiss you is that weird listen to me you're
0: not real let's dive into tower heist i wanted to ask you a little bit about the musical style of the film my first quote for today quote i seem to enjoy odd meters for my heist comedies the theme for tower heist is less bold and heroic it's in seven four but doesn't feature brass as triumphantly close quote I was wondering if we could talk about, you know, embracing this like jazz-like influence of Henry Mancini and Lalo Schifrin using horns and percussions and how you brought that, you know, into this New York story.
1: Yes, it is true. I love odd meters. That love has continued throughout my career, particularly in the Ant-Man franchise at Marvel, which scores are almost wholly based on odd meters. There is something about it that feels so fresh And for those who are listening now who who don't know what odd meters are, most music is in either four beats to the bar or sometimes three. And when you use odd meters, you're talking about really five beats to the bar or seven, which results in the feeling of an extra beat that you didn't expect to be there in the case of five or one fewer beat that you didn't expect to be there in the case of seven, which is really one fewer than eight, which is two times four. Little math there. I love the feeling that, Gives you as a listener. And I also love the challenge of coming up with music that feels like it's flowing in those meters. It's harder because we're not used to it. But when that rhythmic idea or that central motif seems to fit in those odd meters and gets my toes tapping or my head bobbing, it's very, very exciting to me. What's interesting about Tower Heist is the entire, like the main theme, for example, and the brief from the director of that film was he loved those old style heist movies, Lalo Schifrin in particular, Taking a Pelham one, two, three. And he wanted to evoke that old style, but he also really wanted it to feel like New York. And to me, New York is this kind of vibrant, chaotic energy to it, where there's just a lot of stuff going on at the same time. And it's not synchronized, right? It's just, it's just kind of chaotic and a jumble of almost primitive energy And what's interesting about that theme and how I tried to capture that feeling is that if you take the drums out and you just listen to it, then it's very squarely in that seven four meter. But I had the drums play in four four. So what you get is the entire rest of the band coming around to the beginning of their bar again, one beat earlier than the drums do. And then fast forward two bars later, now it becomes two beats earlier. Fast forward two bars later, now it becomes three beats earlier. So at the end of seven or 14 bars of this, it catches up and we get it again. And you end up with this really cool feeling that the drums are very laid back and they're playing a totally simple, standard four, four beat, kind of oblivious to this more complex rhythmic feeling that's going on at the same time. And it creates a feeling that is at once groovy and disconnected and i feel like that was that was really something that i wanted to achieve to capture that that feeling of chaos but also vibrancy in new york
0: Let me ask you about the importance of themes. They're a powerful musical device that kind of reminds audiences about the recurring relationships. Quote, I try to make melody be my primary musical focus on a cue. I love the thematic approach to scoring. We talked about it, Jerry Goldsmith. How you can write a single theme and then find 18 different ways to present it. Close quote. I loved reading about the fact that you said how, as your career has gone on, the importance of themes has gradually increased for you. Why do you think themes work on such a subconscious and emotional level? And speaking about, you know, tempo and odd meters, all these things, I wonder if you ever try to write ones that work just as well when they're being played in different keys and tempos and arrangements.
1: Yes, absolutely. I'll answer the last part of your question first. That is where I think a little bit of, of training goes a long way. There's a skill set that anyone can learn who's a composer, and it's done by studying Bach, who wrote fugues. And that's a very structured and kind of almost proscribed way of taking a melody and developing it. You know, you hear it once in the tenor voice, and then after a certain number of measures, the alto voice comes in playing the exact same thing or singing or playing the exact same theme while the tenor voice continues. And then you find ways to make all that fit together in a way that makes musical sense. And it's a very satisfying and tried and true way to give a a score cohesion. And this is why they work. And this is something that Wagner, when he wrote his operas in the 19th century understood very well and took that technique to its logical extreme, using themes, he called them leitmotifs, to represent characters, situations. And what makes film music so powerful is when it is able to articulate or add something emotional to a scene that isn't maybe already there on screen. You can go see a Star Wars movie and when Luke Skywalker appears, you hear his theme. When Darth Vader appears, you hear his theme. But you can also get to a point in a film like Star Wars, where a character is not on the screen, but maybe is being discussed or even more powerfully, not discussed, but you as a composer, as a storyteller, want to make that character's presence felt. And once you've established the relationship between a the theme and a character, you unlock superpowers, storytelling-wise, where you can, in a very subtle way, remind the audience that a particular character's presence is meant to be felt felt. And it's an incredibly powerful moment. The the best moments for me in film scoring are when the music can really play a role in adding a layer to a scene or a story that isn't already there on the screen. I think that makes the entire experience deeper and more emotionally rich. You know, nothing wrong with, with, okay, I'm seeing a car chase on the screen and I'm going to write exciting car chase music. That's fun too, but um, the opportunities to add layers of drama that aren't already on screen are what creates a really deep and emotional film-watching experience.
0: I told you how I've been doing a, a wonderful Chris Beck binge in the last few weeks, and uh, I rewatched Edge of Tomorrow. For whoever hasn't seen the movie, Tom Cruise plays this cowardly hero in a story that many describe as Groundhog Day meets Saving Private Ryan. You stepped into the project after a preview composer had left And you get six entire months to musically explore the sound of the film. And what I love about it is that as the character's confidence is growing in the story, the music is as well. So I wonder if the cycle-like structure of the movie with each day repeating itself informed the way you try to map out the entire approach to the
1: score. Absolutely. And the increasing confidence and muscularity of the score as the film goes on was a really a kind of organic and naturally occurring development as I was doing the score. That's a case of really instinctual following of the, of the character as it goes along. The, the part that was a little bit less instinctual and more intellectual was less of the overarching architecture of the score and more in terms of how I constructed some of the motifs in the score. And I experimented with literally mirroring the central conceit of the film, which is kind of like a video game. A guy keeps waking up, he has no idea where he is, he does X number of things, he gets killed. And then, boom, he wakes up back where he started I remember uh, working on themes that would start off with just one note, and then there'd be a pause, and then that same note, and then the second note gets added, and then a pause. So there'd be a little musical death and restart at the beginning of each phrase. As production continued, this idea became a little bit less tenable and was maybe not as prominent a musical conceit as I had imagined it would be in the front, but I think there are parts of the film where I was able to do that. And you know that's, that's a little bit less in the department of telling a, a big story and more in the department of coming up with something a little bit fun and a little bit intellectually challenging as a composer, a little puzzle that I can give myself to solve that can maybe get me a little bit out of my comfort zone in terms of writing themes. When you write a lot of themes, for a living, year in, year out, uh, you tend to fall on the same patterns. You know, my fingers go where they wanna go, my brain goes where it wants to go, and it's fun as a composer to challenge yourself every once in a while to get out of those comfort zones and be like, okay, here are some rules I'm gonna make up for myself and let me see if I can stick to them. I'm gonna tell you a story, General, and first it's gonna sound ridiculous, but the longer I talk, the more rational it's going to appear. (laughs) Tell him you call back. Tomorrow's invasion is a slaughter. I'm dead within five minutes of landing on that beach, along with every other soldier you are sending. That's because the enemy knows we're coming. How do I know this? Before I died, I killed a mimic, only this one was different. It passed something onto me in my blood. Now I live the same day over and over again, just like they do, just like Sergeant Fertaski at Verdun. No matter how many times we have this conversation, you refuse to accept that the enemy breaks through to London tomorrow and we lose we lose everything.
0: I think we can both agree that Doug Lyman is a very talented filmmaker. He's awesome. But he's also a very demanding director. Just in general, like when or how does friction lead to new creative discoveries between the two of you? Because you guys had multiple movies to work on together.
1: Yes, and the process was the same in all of them. And I can tell you that there are moments, certainly working on a Doug Lyman film, where I was frankly, miserable, and felt like I wasn't going to get it. And what am I doing? Why am I in this job? A little bit of uh, professional despair, if you will. But I have so much respect for Doug as a filmmaker, having been through the process really after the first time, but now several times, I understand that he is demanding, but it's in the service of excellence. And I am extremely proud of the scores that I did for him. And if and when I got a chance to work with him again, I would jump at it. Because I feel like I do some of my best work when I'm working with him. It's tough. It's a reality of my job, all composers' job, that um, it's a collaborative process. And sometimes artists clash. And sometimes it's a difficult birthing. But I'm so proud of the work that I did and I have utmost respect for him as a collaborator and a filmmaker. I don't know if you're familiar with the film Spinal Tap. I may be dating myself again, but there's this great scene where Paul Schaefer who plays the manager of Spinal Tap, he makes a mistake and he's apologizing to the band and he sort of turns around and shows his posterior to the band. He says, you guys, kick my ass. Come on, just kick my ass. You know you want to. I did bad, kick my ass. And sometimes I feel a little bit like that when I'm working with Doug. It's like, I know you're going to kick my ass, but I welcome it because I know great work is going to come out of it. That's what it is. It's me. I did it. I fucked up. I fucked up the timing. That's all I fucked up the timing. I got no timing. I got no timing. I got no timing. You know what I want you to do? Will you do something for me? What? Do me a favor. Just kick my ass, okay? Kick this ass for a man, that's all. Kick my ass. Enjoy. Come on. I'm not asking, I'm telling with this. Kick my ass.
0: You have talked about the fact that you could divide your career, as in pre-frozen and post-frozen, and I wonder why do you get that feeling?
1: Uh, well, because it's um, one of the uh, most successful movies of all time, frankly. And something I heard at USC, and that sticks to me to this day, as goes your project, so goes your career. And I've had this experience a couple of times. I'm, I'm actually very fortunate to say that I've had this experience a couple of times where as a composer, when you work on a film, you're so deep in the forest that you you only see the trees. I'm thinking about what's in front of me, I'm thinking about the scene in front of me, I'm thinking about the problems I need to solve, the puzzles that are presented, and it's day in, day out, that kind of micro work. And it is not until really much later, sometimes when the movie is finished or even when it comes out, that I can take a step back and say, you know what, this is a fucking great movie. I apologize for my language. And in the case of Frozen, I distinctly remember it was my first animated feature. And uh, Tom McDougall, the head of music at uh, Disney Animation brought me to my first screening. He warned me, he said, you know, the way these movies work is, you know, we're a year out and we are still trying to find the movie. Try not to judge the movie or evaluate the movie based on what you're seeing. You're just gonna get a feel for it. They always come together. Sometimes it's it's at the very last moment. And I remember sitting down and watching the film and it was well before they had figured out some key, key elements that made the movie such a success. And I know now having worked on several animated films, that is kind of a standard process for everyone working on these films, but it was new to me. And I had just seen Wreck-It Ralph and I loved it. And I went um, to go watch Frozen for the first time. And I remember thinking, okay, it's a composer's dream to work on a big Disney animated film. And here I am living that dream. But why, oh why, would it have to be this silly princess movie? And I was like, okay, well, I guess, you know, I'm just gonna have to uh, resign myself to the fact that uh, my first big Disney animated film is not the one that I would have picked for me. Like, why couldn't they have hired me for Wreck-It Ralph? I was thinking to myself. Of course, over the period of the next year, year and a half, the movie got better and better and better. And I became more engrossed in the day-to-day aspects of solving the musical problems and helping tell the story and working with my collaborators. And then when it came out and it was, first of all, clear that it was brilliant, and second of all, became this huge smash hit. It really did change, I believe, the way the industry perceived me. Not only by virtue of the fact that it was a commercial success, unlike any other that I had worked on up to that point. Up to that point, I was mainly considered, I believe, a composer for comedies. My first jobs were comedies, both mainstream contemporary Hollywood family comedies like Big Fat Liar, Cheaper by the Dozen, and others like that and also the more raunchy, sometimes teen comedies or bro comedies like Bring It On or The Hangover. And I think I was really able to change the perception of me as a composer who could do a lot more than just these types of comedies. And that really opened up my career and I've enjoyed a pretty great variety of projects since then, including continuing to work on comedies, which I I love doing but also movies like Edge of Tomorrow and the Marvel movies.
0: Let me quickly touch on the Ant-Man franchise because I think you've been very smart at pointing out Consciously or subconsciously I think it was the perfect bridge for you to enter the MCU because it's you know Just as much a superhero film as it is a heist movie as I was doing research I I found this pattern of you sometimes approaching a project with a completely like from a complete different direction that doesn't end up being in the movie in the case of Ant-Man, you and the uh, director Peyton Reed were seduced by the idea of using a modular synth to create this glitchy digital idea of a swarm of insects, like yeah. performing the music, which sounds awesome. Yeah. Unfortunately, it wasn't what the movie needed or what Marvel thought it needed at the time. But I was wondering, when you look back now at these radically different approaches you have on these films, why do you think the early experimenting part of your job is so crucial?
1: If it's early, and there is time to actually experiment and not feel pressure to dive right into actually producing music for this scene and music for that scene, then it gives you such creative freedom to work in an environment where there isn't time pressure. And just as importantly, and this will depend on uh, my collaborators, if they um, are interested in this sort of experimentation and if they are sincerely able to allow me to venture out into Areas that are not my comfort zone and maybe make a mistake here and there and not hold me terribly accountable for that, knowing that we have time to reevaluate and try different things. That environment creates a freedom of expression and experimentation, and that results often in results where you can really feel that creativity and originality shines through. In the case of Ant-Man, one of my favorite parts of that story is the quote that Kevin Feige, the president of Marvel, said when he first heard what Peyton and I had been cooking up, which is, uh, it sounds cool, but I don't love music that makes me think my speakers are broken. And Peyton and I kind of looked at each other and were like, oh, okay, yeah, you know, maybe we did go a little too far here. And Kevin's tastes run a little bit more towards the traditional, and we ended up going in that direction. I am excited to continue working with Peyton on, uh, on Ant-Man 3. Who knows, maybe we'll have a chance to revisit that, I don't know, but I can tell you just based on what's publicly out there, and that the title of the movie that's been announced is uh, Quantum Mania, which would seem to imply that much of it takes place in the quantum realm, and the quantum realm, for anyone who's seen the movies, they will know this, is the universe that exists on such a subatomic level it is not earth, it is not space, it is something else entirely that will invite exactly that sort of uh, musical experimentation. Whether that takes the form of glitchy electronics synth made on my modular or something a little more adventurous with uh, real instruments, I have no idea yet, but I look forward to that experimental phase.
0: And we look forward to seeing it. I'd love to spend a couple minutes to talk about Division. Congratulations first off on Thank you. what it turned out to be. You know, just to focus on the 1950s and 60s, the first few episodes, we should talk about the amazing team that supports you through the projects. And in this case, I know you had Alex Kovacs and given his jazz background, uh, it kind of helped you out with those first few episodes. Because back then, as listeners know, like the ensemble size was small. We didn't have a Marvel orchestra, you know, because of how little underscoring there used to be back in programs like the Dick Van Dyke show. I was wondering if you could tell me about the conversations you and Alex had in regards to spotting, which for people listening means choosing when the music comes in and how you guys recorded and mixed the music in a way that felt period accurate for those first few episodes.
1: Yeah. So first of all, the conversations about spotting were mostly between me and Matt Shackman, the director of all the episodes. Alex, I had never worked with before prior to WandaVision. And uh, it wasn't until a little bit later in the process that I brought Alex into some of those creative discussions that I was having with Matt. But that is a great question, and it did come up because there was a commitment when I first started to have the music be as period accurate as possible in a very loving way. And this ethos informed every aspect of production, and it's obvious when you sit down and watch it. The production design, the cadence of the actors' voices, all of that is in service of producing this very loving recreation of these old sitcoms. So... We originally set out to spot it uh, much in the way that you described. They didn't have a lot of underscore there. And what happened was when we started watching the episodes in their entirety with demos of the score, we realized that there was just not enough music. And, you know, all the people involved with the show loved what Alex and I were doing so much that they just wanted more of it, particularly Kevin Feige, again, uh, president of Marvel, was like, you know, I love this music, let's, why can't we have more of it? And I feel like this scene could support some, and this scene could support some. And so Matt and I kind of sat down, and we're like, well, you know, we, we had this idea, and it was a good idea, but maybe Kevin's on to something. So we ended up looking for ways to put more music in. Maybe in a very literal sense, it wasn't as historically accurately spotted as it would have been otherwise, but it still felt right, because the music itself was very much of the time period. And I really don't think today's audiences watching that would be like, whoa, that's a little more music than I imagine there would have been back then. We are all so accustomed to more music in films and TV shows these days than we were you know, 70 years ago. And that is a trend that has occurred. In general, in filmed entertainment, music is relied on more than it used to be. That's just culturally how our sensibilities have evolved. So it felt right to honor at least that part of the modern sensibility and make sure that the period feeling of the show could be enhanced by having a little more of that period music. Alex was great to work with. As you mentioned, he has so much experience and training in jazz, and he was absolutely essential part of the process to capture that authentic sound. I probably on my own could have done uh, a bunch of research and study and faked my way through it. But with Alex, you get a little bit extra touch of authenticity.
0: I thought we could talk about Wanda's theme, which is playing over the end credits. As you mentioned, what's unique about this, which not only you don't get in movies, because in this case, we're talking about recurring episodes, but Marvel has hooked people into believing that something may happen at the end of the episode. So people sit through the credits and people familiarize and, and it becomes more and more emotional every week that's going by and people are watching it. About it, you had this to say, quote, on WandaVision, I try to hook into the dark and supernatural aspect of the show. I framed the theme through a high concept idea by interlocking string chords playing rhythmically and you get the feeling of a cascading waterfall falling over and over with each bar. We talked about the crazy approach to Ant-Man, but why do you think approaching music on a conceptual level for you is
1: helpful? It's helpful in two ways. That's a great question. Number one, creatively, I think it's this way of confronting the fear of the blank page. And it kind of ties back into what I was talking about with Edge of Tomorrow. I'll just speak for myself, where I sometimes feel a little overwhelmed when there is the entire universe of musical possibilities in front of me it can feel like there are just too many choices especially if inspiration doesn't strike immediately it can be frustrating to come up with an idea and then think oh but there's a billion other ideas one of them could be better let me just keep banging my head against the wall here so it is helpful to think a little bit more intellectually and a little bit more in what I call high concept ways about the music and force myself in a way, it's it's not really forcing, but it's, it's a way of making the entire universe of musical possibilities more manageable simply by shrinking it. In the case of that particular waterfall idea, that's simply something that I've always been interested in. I love the idea of using the orchestra very rhythmically. And I also think it's really cool when there's a nugget of an idea that's passed around from section to section. It even sounds cool when you think about standing in a room or listening in surround or stereo and you hear the first violins, which are on the left, start off with something, and then the second violins pick it up and they're on the right. So you you feel like you're being kind of surrounded by all these related interlocking ideas that musical device is very exciting to me and I'm sure it's not the last time I'll be exploring it. And the second part is much more practical and it makes it honestly an easier sell. I think it's exciting when you can present a piece of music to your collaborators and say, you know, hey, not only do I hope this is a great piece of music, but here are some things about it that I think are really cool to think about and talk about. And that's exciting. It's exciting for me and it's exciting for my collaborators.
0: I thought we can begin wrapping things up with a little quick speed round. We could talk for hours about the ethics of temp music. How often does it ever happen that you're handed a
1: dry version of a movie? And just what are your thoughts on it? Well, let me reframe. I don't consider it a matter of ethics at all. It is simply a matter of practical expediency. It is very, very difficult to tell when you're in the editing room whether a scene is working or not because music can be such an important part of helping a scene work. So it's just a tool. And it's all about the mindset of my collaborators. And if they understand that being really attached to a piece of tent music, and for those in your audience who don't know, this is a piece of music could come from anywhere that gets used in the editing phase before a composer has had a chance to write original score. And what often happens is the filmmakers get used to this piece of music and then when, for example, I come in to replace it, their imagination has been uh, somewhat stunted by the repetition of hearing one piece of music over and over again in their scene and it becomes difficult psychologically for them to appreciate or imagine anything else there. I've been very fortunate that my collaborators tend not to fall into this trap and appreciate my own creativity and sensibilities and what I can bring to the storytelling. And the one part of your question I can answer very easily, never. There's never not a temp score in a film. And I do find it helpful. It is difficult to talk about music. There's a famous quote, talking about music is like dancing about architecture. There is no better way to communicate the intent of a scene musically in a film than to listen to the tent music. You know, for me, once is enough, sparks a discussion. And then I try to forget I ever heard it and then try to apply my own sensibilities and creativity to it. And so it is a, I wouldn't even call it a necessary evil. I would just call it a necessary tool.
0: You spoke about movies being the modern operas of today and what you're doing isn't very different from the great composers of the past. So just for fun, if Mozart was a composer today, <laughs> what franchise or kind of movies would you love to see him score?
1: Well, oh, that's a tough question because the style of music has evolved so much. Well, I'm just going to dodge that question by musing about it. I observe that contemporary film music stylistically is a product of the music that the composers who are making it were brought up on. So for anyone from my generation, we're talking about 80s pop music, 90s, 70s, whatever it may be. So there's a simplicity of approach. There's a central melody and then a chord progression underneath it. There's a very defined structure. You have verse, chorus, verse, chorus. All of these sensibilities, I think, certainly appear in my music and I hear it all the time in my contemporaries. I will also point out that there have been numerous pieces of classical music that have been made famous by their use in movies, Adagio for Strings by Barber and its use in Platoon comes to mind. So there's no denying the power of music that is not pop music based to evoke emotions in films. Um, Okay, I'll I'll kind of undodge the question a little bit by saying one of my favorite composers is Igor Stravinsky. There's a rawness and visceral quality and ferociousness to his music that would be awesome in a horror movie.
0: Aliens arrived on Earth today Chris, and they can only take home one film score of yours. Which one do you choose and why?
1: Of mine? Oof, you're asking me to choose between my children. You know, because it's so fresh and because I'm so proud of it and because I'm still basking in the afterglow of its success and its cultural relevance, I'm going to say WandaVision. Also, I'm going to cheat a little bit there because... There were nine episodes of WandaVision. Each one had their own soundtrack album. I think uh, someone on the internet added up all the minutes and it was like three and a half hours of music. So I just get more bang for my buck in terms of um, getting gigs with the aliens because uh, they're going to have more of my music than if I just gave them one of my scores, which would be an hour.
0: Let me just wrap things up by asking about your legacy because I think what's interesting about your career is that Your relationship with music has continued to evolve. Like you want to be a rock star, then you became a TV composer, then it was a film composer, but maybe you're relegated to certain kind of films. And now you just finished scoring what is considered one of the greatest series. My last quote for today, quote, as a professional, I distill a lifetime of artistic experience. The music I've listened, the films I've watched, they're all in my brain jumbling around. When I'm composing, I'm taking all these elements and rearranging them in a way that feels new to me. Close quote. So what have the last 28 years taught you about your musical identity as a composer. And what is the conversation like with yourself in regards to all the great work you've produced and the work you're still looking to produce?
1: Well, thank you. I'm searching in my head for any other time in any other interview that someone has actually used the word legacy. So I say thank you for being the first. It is a very unfamiliar and uncomfortable thing for me to think about because that all of a sudden now, now I'm thinking about, I have a legacy. Well, the implication there is that like, my career is gonna be over someday. It's a very provocative and and kind of profound question because it, and I certainly didn't mean it in any way to say that like, I'm in the sunset of my career and I'm on the downswing, anything like that. No, what it does is it triggers in me a mindset, a consciousness where I can step back and really look back at my career. And it's very, it's a little unfamiliar to me. so. I'm gonna, I'm gonna struggle a little bit, but um, I guess it's a little bit analogous to when I'm working on a film and I'm in a scene and I'm only just thinking about that scene, I'm thinking about the problems of that scene. You know, you, you zoom out and now I'm working on one project and I'm not thinking about it in the context of my career. So at this point, I've, I've actually forgotten what your question is because I'm so overwhelmed by the prospect of like looking at my own career and having a legacy. To me, it's really about um, staying in the moment, finding ways to keep myself, not only interested, but uh, artistically full. You know, I I make music because it fills my soul. And if I can get that feeling while I'm working on a project, then that's what sustains me. I don't know where the next, oh gosh, let's be generous here, 30 years of my career are gonna take me, but um, I think, really part of the fun is is that I don't know. And um, I have no preconceived notions of where that's gonna go. I have no goals except to keep looking for ways to fill that artistic soul of mine. And I have no doubt that I'll be able to. I mean, I'm just gonna keep doing it till I can't. Chris,
0: this has been such an amazing conversation. I can't thank you enough for your work, for being generous with your time. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Awesome, thank you so much. And there you have it folks. Thank you to Chris
0: for calling in from his studio to record this episode, and to Eric for taking care of the final mixing. I also wanna give a special shout out to Lexi and Caroline who recently joined the Soundstage Access team. Chris's new film, Free Guy, starring Ryan Reynolds is scheduled to open in theaters August 13th with WandaVision currently streaming on Disney+. If you enjoy our program, please help us by taking a moment to subscribe to the show. Send your favorite episode to a friend to help fellow cinephiles and new listeners find the podcast. I'm Brando Benetton, and you've been listening to Soundstage Access.